This podcast provides information to help esports professionals identify and approach legal problems. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only. Legal information is not the same as legal advice, which is an application of law to a party's specific set of circumstances. You should not and are not authorized to use this podcast as a source of legal advice. And the information in this podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between the Law of Esports podcast, any of the lawyers or affiliates of the podcast, and any consumer of this podcast. Welcome to the Law of Esports podcast, the number one podcast that discusses legal issues as they relate to the world of esports. My name is Jake Hicks, and I'm an attorney that represents teams, leagues, and organizations. And my name is Nefi Lopez, and I'm an attorney that represents players, streamers, and personalities. And today, we have another installment of our Pro-Op series, where we bring you guests from across the spectrum of esports jobs and across this beautiful industry that we know and love in esports. And we couldn't be more excited today to bring to you one of the foremost journalists in the esports industry. And I know we've had a few journalists on this show before and on this podcast that we know and love and are very dear, near and dear to our hearts. But the man we have today, the 2021 Esports Award Journalist of the Year, very recent, but also if you were to make a Mount Rushmore of esports journalists, this guy would certainly be on it. And if you talk about some of the biggest breaking stories in the past three, four, five years in esports, you've probably seen this man's name before, and that is Mr. Kevin Hit. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, totally glad to be here. Um, look forward to uh, an engaging conversation about various topics in the space. Awesome, man. Well, thank Absolutely, you so man. much. Thank you. Thank yes. You. Thank you. Thank you. And we know that you have a rich history within esports, but you also have a fascinating history, as we understand it, of how you got into esports, as so many of us do in this industry, right? Very few people started yeah. in esports when they were in grade school and came up all oh, the way yeah. through the industry. Um, but we just start off by telling us kind of where you grew up and how you sort of came up in the world before all the esports stuff came in. Yeah, you know, I like to describe myself. I, and this is gonna again tell everybody exactly uh, how old I am, I guess. But there's a movie out there. It's called Big Fish. Okay, now it, it's a little sad, but here, it, but this is why it's important. Big Fish is about a dad that is on his deathbed that's been telling stories to his kids over the years about all the things that he has done over the course of his life. Well, they kind of just, you know, uh, push him to the side, appease him, and just go, okay, Dad, okay, Dad. But when he passes away, everybody from the stories he told shows up to his funeral. So all of his kids go, wait, are you kidding? That was true. That was true. I really do liken myself to that story in the esports space because I honestly don't think there's anybody that's been in law enforcement um, as a law enforcement officer, as I have, I've worked for city government running leagues with 300 teams in them for youth sports. I've been a collegiate volleyball coach winning a national championship at Northern Michigan University. And as we were discussing earlier, a division one volleyball coach, a an Olympic volleyball coach uh, for the London Games, the 2012 quad. And then, you know, wherever that took me to journalism. And so I've basically, you know, run the gambit of so many different things that 
I just can't settle down. So, um, you know, af- after I got uh, after I got injured uh, in law enforcement, I just uh, had to get out because if you get hurt and you have a lingering injury, it you know, officer safety, things like that, you're not going to be able to continue. Um, I-, I sort of was taking stock of my skill set. I could always coach, right? But I was like, well, I write reports and I write every day and they're pretty factual. And so I thought, well, let's try it. So I applied to different places. And back then in like, you know, 2005, six, and then again in 2013 ish, um, people were looking for cheap labor, basically, to pay you nothing right. to write a whole lot. Right. I mean, that's sort right. of the what has happened in the space. And so I applied at a couple of places and ended up working for Rotowire, where I was the National League depth charts writer for pitching. So I could tell you who was a starter, who's a closer in on all the teams uh, in the National League for about a couple of years. And then lo and behold, um, Jeff Erickson and the rest of the crew, they, they got together and they're like, hey, Kev, you play you play video games? And I'm like, yeah, they're like, OK. You're part of the esports division now. There we go. And literally yeah. like that, we were doing Dota 2 notes and Counter-Strike notes for ESPN because um, they had a contract with us where they're literally doing player notes like they would do Major League or Fantasy Football, right? Where you click on the player box and it says, you know, Akers was uh, twisted his ankle in game, what yada, yada, yada. And you would yeah. write. So I'd write those notes for CSGO and Dota. But what we found was that I sucked. And then I was boring. <laughs> and then I wrote them very factually like a report. Right. And people did not want to read that. So I had a couple of friends go, Kevin, you're really good at being factual and chronological. But, dude, you're boring as hell and you need to add some flavor to it. So yeah. uh, over the years, I honed that and ended up going, you know, from Rotowire to Shannon Terry's WWG, who uh, is now comicbook.com. I mean, this is a dude that, uh, Jake, you might know, he started Rivals, the football recruiting site, right? Um, And sold that off to Yahoo for like $90 and then sold 24-7 sports off to CVS, I think, for like 40. He was my mentor, and he was the one that flew me to Tennessee and said, you've got some skills, kid, but we need to work on your presentation. And so he flew me (laughs) to the office made sure that, uh, you know, he taught me all the things that he knew, um, you know, about running websites and about what stories resonate with readers. And then from there, it was just, you know, a litany of different websites until I uh, ended up here at Sports Business Journal. Wow, man. Well, and that's so, that's a long, long road. Yeah. But before, <laughs> so I, and, and I think a lot of people know your name, especially Nephi and I, um, you know, we really got to know more about your work. Uh, at the Esports Observer, and certainly with yeah. you know Hector Rodriguez getting optic back from Immortals sure. Gaming Club, and that yeah. what a massive story that was, uh, in really in the sports business world, not just esports, but how massive that story became. But before, so before this, you mentioned briefly that you were you grew up uh, and became a law enforcement officer, and before yeah. that, were you in sports growing up? Was that something that you yeah, were passionate I, about? Yeah, yeah, I scholarshiped at Northern Michigan and played volleyball there. So, okay. which is funny because if you look at me, I'm five nine with new shoes on, and five ten in the media guide. Though you guys know how we do. Yeah. Um, so I played volleyball for the men's team at Northern Michigan, and uh, so I was the number two hitter in the conference, captain of the team. 
because the number one hitter in the conference was six foot eight Brent Doble, who happened to be Karch Karai's freaking gold medal winning partner in Atlanta on the sand. And uh, he went to Michigan Tech. And the conference, surprisingly, up there, MIVA, um, it's like Midwest Intercollegiate, whatever, whatever. It was just stacked, and there was a lot of California guys. But baseball was my first love, um, and I don't know. I mean, what a dummy, right? A five foot nine guy going to take a college scholarship in volleyball, <laughs> and not uh, in baseball, where I might have been able to have a chance afterwards. Because yeah. there's no five nine outside hitters professionally, guys. I'm just going to say it. But there <laughs> are five foot nine second basemen. So, oh, um, so yeah. So um, turned down three scholarships in baseball to take uh, one for volleyball, and then uh, played on the men's team there. Nice man. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. And so, so what so made you we, go from? We know, we know... Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Nevi. Oh no, no. Sorry, sorry, Jay. Go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say so. So when you go from college sports, um, yeah. what made you go from there instead of going into journalism or into uh, further into professional sports from there to law enforcement? Um, I, I've always had a notion of getting bad guys off the streets. I, you know, I look, um, I can tell you my first time around, um, I was an SSO with Orange County Sheriff Department where I worked in the jails per usual, right? Um, uh, left there, um, and then went back into coaching and the whole, the whole time I was still coaching club volleyball, which is like, you know, travel ball, high school kids that try out yada yada. So I never left coaching, but I went into law enforcement because I, I, I want to help people get bad guys off the street and help everyone, regardless of what you look like, your orientation. Um, and in fact, later on, when I was deciding between LAPD and LA County Sheriff Department, I said in my oral board interview, I said, I'm tired of you guys talking with guns and hats and bats. I'd rather use my words and create a community policing profile. I thought I was going to get kicked out of the room. I thought they literally were going to say, okay, you know, Mr. Hit, thank you. Um, but I literally got a call before everybody else. And they said, no, you're the guy we want. And that's me in a nutshell. I just want to see people be treated well, uh, the bad guys be removed from any area. And as you guys uh, have probably seen, that's how I carry myself in the uh, esports journalism world. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah and the question I was going to ask earlier was, so we, we know that you spent some time in Houston. Right, I think yeah. you coached at Jake's alma mater at Rice I University. Did. And Rice Owls, baby. If I remember correctly, yeah, you said you spent about three years, and so it looks like you bounced around quite a bit, you know, with your career and you know coaching different schools. Did you spend a lot of time in Texas and Michigan? Um, at you know, at what point during that career did you decide, hey, you know what? Um, I, I and I and I, you know I'm I'm trying to do it in a way because I already know the answer to this question, but you know my understanding is at some point during your uh, journalism career you started talking about sports, right? And you started working on you, you said uh, uh, the pitchers for yeah. all the all the major league teams. Yeah. Um, when did that convert into video games? Well, I am I, I can I can legitimately tell you that I had an Atari twenty six hundred to which I had the Atari 5200, went from the Commodore 64 to the Commodore 128 to the Amiga 500 to the Amiga 1500 to a 383 to a 300 baud modem on BBS boards throughout the day. Yeah. 
I was playing I was playing blue meanies from outer space on the Vic 20. I want to say, yeah, I want to say in like 1985, I was playing this video game, Blue Meanies, which was a a Space Invaders knockoff. Um, I've played video games my whole life. Like I can I can tell I can tell you I I wasn't good at them. I didn't compete. I played in clans and guilds and we played, you know, whatever, whatever. But I've been playing video games my whole life. And when I saw that esports was a new horizon, right? I mean, some people have been playing competitively forever, but I think we can all agree that sometime in 2000, between the years of 2013 and 2015 is when the sort of gold rush of esports, uh, you know, took place and everybody started to get in. It expanded. Organizations are playing in tournaments, are getting big money. Players are dictating, you know, $10,000 a month to play Counter-Strike. I found it fascinating. But what I also found fascinating was the lack of oversight. Um, I I think we can talk about you know, the illegal gambling websites that were being ran by a couple of these esports organizations because they couldn't make real money, right? So they had their organization up front, but behind, some of them were match fixing, some of them were running skin sites, uh, Phantom Lord T. Martin, you know, basically giving you a false sense of winning percentage so that 15-year-olds would max out their parents' credit cards. And while there were a couple of people, you know, such as Richard Lewis and some others, there was not a whole lot of people going to bat for people being wronged for fear of being ostracized and kicked out of the space. I can tell you, I'm a survivor. my, My ability to work in four different, you know, sectors allows me to be who I want to be. Because if esports, if I go against somebody big in esports that's doing bad things and they want to cancel me or get rid of me, I'll still fight the good fight until they tell me to leave. And if ultimately a bigger entity is successful in telling me to leave, I'll still fight the good fight, but I can go back into law enforcement, um, you know, as a reserve working cyber crimes and fraud. Um, I've talked to a couple of my friends that have been promoted to captain about literally going back working in cybercrimes and fraud because as you guys uh, did, they noticed my investigative journalism. My buddy calls me out of nowhere who's been promoted and says, Kevin, we can sponsor you back in to work in cybercrimes and fraud because we've seen the work that you've done. So, yeah, I've been playing video games. I was that kid and played video games my whole life, played sports, but at lunch in high school. I was playing D&D with the nerds. So yeah. while my cool friends were walking by with their bats and, you know, gloves and going to practice, I was finishing rolling the dice and then running out to practice. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's and it's kind of crazy the um so let's let's unpack that a little bit cuz you said a lot of very interesting things and some of the things that we like to discuss here on this podcast. Um and some of those things are for example, the people being wronged and yeah. um, sort of the nastier side of esports, and it's something. And 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 you know, you may not, you may or may not know this. We had Richard Lewis on the podcast not too long ago. We released yeah. actually one of our um, one of our more popular episodes uh, because a lot of these things people are afraid to to talk about. And and exactly. you said it yourself. 
you have something to fall back on. And so you, yeah. you act in a genuine way to where you feel you're doing what you think is best for the scene and for the people that, like you said, are being wrong. And that's, that's an interesting way to, to go about. And it sounds like it's sort of a common denominator that we see with some of the greatest um, investigative journalists in esports because, you know, Richard lives the same way. He's, uh, you know, he, he, the way that he writes and the stories that he discusses and sort of his takes are uh, not the mainstream takes and they're honest um, and they're, you know, pessimistic to a degree, but you know, it's, it's, it's healthy Um, pessimism in my opinion. And so, um, you know, at, at what point, during your involvement with esports, you know, because obviously to somebody new in the scene, they're like, oh, video games, and they look at it kind of in a jolly manner. Did you realize that, oh, man, this is turning into, um, you know, a business to where those things are happening to where people are getting wrong? Follow the money. Whenever you find sectors in the business space where there's a lot of money being poured into, all the charlatans and snake oil salesmen are going to meet you there. Just like at any festival, just like at any concert, all the pickpockets, all the thieves, everybody that they see it, you know, as a sea of victims, right? There are people like that. And some of us, and it's okay. I mean, I, I, God love the naive folk that just want to, you know, do their thing and be nice to people and live their own lives. There are people out there, though, that need to help those people and their naivete, um, and protect them from those sorts of charlatans and sharks and snake oil salesmen. And as I started to dive deeper into the esports space, again, gambling. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but um, I was intimately involved with the Washington State Gambling Commission when they were um, going after Valve for a variety of reasons. You know, whether it was um, loot boxes, as we call them, or diff- various, you know, gambling um, ideas, um, you know, and then it, I mean, and Valve really, I mean, just to kind of switch gears a little bit, Valve really was the one that kicked this whole thing off when they hired the former minister of Greek, uh, Greece's finance um, to create an ecosystem where, you know, they got a cut of every single deal and they got loot. Like that guy's the one, he is the one that started this whole thing. And Valve, I mean, look what happened. Valve was an okay running company. And then when they started doing the loot boxes on the backs of the, the Greek minister they hired, Look at how much money they've made over there. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The other thing is any new sporting or competitive um, entity, unfortunately, in my opinion now, they prey on the vices of those that can't control themselves. Whether it's drinking, gambling, uh, you, you know, all those things. What's the last thing to go out of any town that fails? The bar. Um, that'll be the last thing that packs up and leaves, right? Because people have to have their alcohol. And in esports, when I started seeing, again, um, all the gambling sites, the roulette wheels, the, um, you know, the uh, let's talk about the owners not paying their players, um, lying to them about their investments and how much money they've got, saying, no, let's put this order together, um, you know, talking specifically about denial. 
um, and uh, Robbie uh, Rinalda, I believe his name was, and how he started an org and just didn't pay his players um, for for months. And in fact, I think um, one of the girls that was uh, working, uh, playing for Selfless uh, at the time had to pay the bills for the house because he couldn't or wouldn't pay the players. So just with those two separate things, you know, with the gambling and the vices, with esports owners not paying their players uh, uh, properly or at a living uh, rate, there was more than enough to dive into to try and help because I think esports is a worthwhile endeavor because there is no more inclusive thing on the planet than video games because it doesn't matter what you look like it doesn't matter if you're the six foot eight extreme athlete or a 110 pound kid in a wheelchair once you hit the sticks it's all even and that's what i love about this space yeah no i think us too and that's one of the things that nephi and i have identified with both having runs with traditional sports to a point and then we were both told at different points in our careers, you're just not quite the right size or what we're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that sucks whenever it's your passion and you want to keep on going. And so it's great. One of the things that attracted us to esports was the fact that it's so inclusive of yes. really anyone. And now we're seeing more gender inclusivity, which is great. Exactly. Um, but well, I'm a coach of women that. for 28 years. Yeah, I've coached yeah. women and girls for 20. I have a daughter that's 16, right? And right. so, uh, and throughout my coaching career, and sorry to interrupt, Jake. Uh, no, no, you're just, good. I think this is so important. Throughout Absolutely. my coaching career, I've told my players, you need to be women that can stand up on their own two feet and you don't need anybody. Because unfortunately, my mom, she had to have a man to survive. Because she didn't have a skill set that could make money and, you know, have a family. So me and my brother got dragged around from boyfriend to boyfriend because she didn't have enough money to survive. And I don't want any player I've ever coached or any woman I come in contact with or anybody regardless to need somebody. I want them to be able to stand on their own feet. And again, a coach of 28 years with women and girls. I think this is a great opportunity for them to rule the world and be able to uh, create a career path where they can have what they want, what not what they need. Yeah. Well, no, I, and we completely agree. And that's one of the yeah. things that we think about that we think is so great about esports. But yes. my question for you is you, you touched on the fact that esports early on, at least in 2013, 2014, 15, even yeah. as we get here, we are today um, that it attracted some portions of business, some vices that appeal to certain vices that aren't ideal and it left some room for exploitation. Um, did you see that same type of risk involved in, let's say, minor league baseball or NBA D league and in traditional sports generally? And if you did see those or if you didn't, why, how do you think that's related to esports at all? It, well, don't be mad at me, but I think we can see that cheating still happens in baseball today. <laughs> I mean, today, I don't know. Today, I don't know. Are we out? For the podcast <laughs> listeners, for the guys yes. that are not watching the video, I, don't I'm be wearing mad. an orange polo because the Astros are currently playing uh, in the World Series. And, so and well-deserved. 
Well deserved. I give you. I promise. That's my act. Well deserved. <laughs> Thank you. So to answer Jake, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, every sports league seems to have started off with you know altru altruistic intentions, right? But then they come out of the woodwork. I mean, all we have to talk about is the Black Sox, right? Uh, you right. know, Shoeless Joe Jackson, the rest of the team taking money to throw. Was it the 08 World Series? I think it was or 8. I forget. I think there's an eight in there. But they threw uh, a World Series, right? Because they weren't making enough money. Isn't that really what happens? It's like the smaller organizations that can't afford to pay, you know, a living salary. They're the ones that where the you know, the guy in the trench coat. Hey, buddy, come here. I've got something I want to talk to you about. What do you mean I can make $10,000 if I throw one map? Yeah. You know, instead of hitting that headshot right there, just yank the mouse a little bit and miss. We'll pay you $10,000. I, I think, Jake, you hit on the head. I think it is very synonymous to the early days of just about any sport in that when you are just starting, that's, again, that's when all the lack of oversight, right? Because they haven't have established best practices or have investigative bodies, um, you know, that they're not there yet. Um, so right. it's it's prime for the taking in the beginning. But you notice and I would say the biggest kind of gambling uh, thing that we had, Pete Rose, I would say, is probably the last one in, in Major League Baseball. Um, because there wasn't, you know, the internet, and there wasn't as much information. But now with right. the new technological age and the way that people can study things forensically, I mean, holy cow, they can tell you to the nanosecond when these bets are coming in. And that's why they can tell you, nah, this, they have an AI that goes, nope, this match was most likely fixed, you know, 95% that this match was fixed, 86% this match was fixed. So I absolutely believe we are still um, in those middling days of where things can still um, uh, go wrong as far as gambling and other things in the space. Well, and Nephi and I have an episode on regulatory or regulations in esports and certain yeah. regulatory bodies because they are in their infancy really um yes there's just, so much just, to talk about there yeah well so and we and we discussed esic and in the world of esports regulatory bodies as a journalist that regularly investigates the gaps in esports regulations where do you see esic as it stands today do you think it's on the right track or do you think it needs to be rethought and what are your feelings on that well, authority is really only derived from those people that give it to you. I mean, that's a fact, right? The the only people that can that have authority over esports are the publishers. They own the IP, they own the game, they are truly the last say in anything. Um they can overrule Isek at any time. They literally could go there and say, no, this cat gets to play because we like this dude, if they so chose. Right. Um, and so things like Isik, right? Well, I think what you're seeing is a another gold rush to see who's going to be the governing body for the various esports entities. I like to talk about it like this. Do you remember back, and it still happens today, but when I was watching um, boxing, um, on TV and it was on, you know, on TV or HBO back in the day, we had a box, you had to flip a switch to watch. 
You would hear, and now, the WBA, WBC, WBO, WBW champion. It's like, bro. <laughs> <laughs> there's the, and that's what you're seeing today right you're seeing so many different organizations especially collegiately here in north america um you're seeing so many people vie to be the governing agency because let's just be real honest if you're the governing agency it's going to be a business that makes money that's really what they're into it for i mean it is and there's nothing wrong with that but there's some people that are doing it wrong I don't even know what ESIC's doing because I haven't seen them publish anything other than 18 months apart. I want to say at some point with yeah. that investigation, they, well, in, I, I'm going to do air quotes. If you can't see him, well, ESIC doing that investigation that basically came out so far apart and nobody even, I mean, and, and people got mad at me for it. And maybe I'm on the other side of the opinion on this, but ESIC appears to want to be a conference provider more than it wants to be a governorship. I mean, they're promoting their own conferences and I'm not seeing, you know, investigations. I'm not seeing, and yes, so we've seen, you know, two in Counter-Strike with the viewership bug and uh, owners, uh, uh, coaches being able to see different players placing a camera. But uh, ESIC is not as involved as a governing body should be because we still got a lot of problems going on in this space. So again, ESIC... It, uh, their authority is only derived from the people that give it to them. And then sometimes the people that even sign the deal with them are still doing their own things. Again, E6 telling you that a guy can't play CSGO, as you guys well know, and have probably already talked about, can't tell them they can't play Valorant. Right. And, and right. yeah, so I, 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 until the publishers figure out something that works, I am, not very bullish on you know the governing bodies of esports. Yeah, and that's and that's that's interesting because so we did a whole episode on ESIC and and that's that's essentially our our conclusion was the only way it works is is people have to give it the authority and the respect that they're you know they're promising that they're going to get. They need to sign a deal with Riot, not ESL. They need to sign right. a deal with Activision Blizzard not face it proly, right? It's like, uh, if they're literally going to, they need the backing of the publisher. Everything else doesn't matter. They need to, you know, they need to be the de facto leadership of esports for the publisher. And until that happens, I just don't think they are going to be very effective. Yeah. And that's, and that's interesting. And that's, that's a tough hurdle to overcome is to be, I guess important enough to where a publisher feels like they should sign a contract because you know, or give up any power. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's <laughs> yeah. what I was going to say, you know, with giving power, you're also creating yes. some type of liability. Um, mm -hmm. And they, they just kind of want to be hands off and say, look, you know, we'll let you guys play, do this thing, pay us our fees or whatever, yes. uh, you know, and, and you guys do you essentially. Um, and, and they're relatively hands off, which I guess is, is a good and bad. It's good because it allows, everybody to govern themselves and it's bad because um if you if if they're not sanctioned by the publishers themselves they really don't have any bite again again the bite you know it's it's a team could say no and if what what is isik gonna do really you know yeah. and so um but you know but then again and, and i and i agree with you i think uh the timing is also questionable especially this last 
major mm-hmm. tournament where they, you know, made a couple of, of findings of their investigations that were yeah. kind of quietly happening in the background. It, it the timing I don't think was great because nobody knew what was going on and you know, people were just pissed off and they're like what they didn't even know what ESIC was and then they're coming in and they're dropping this hammer where like you you know you can't coach and you can't play and, and wasn't it right uh, before the major right right was before li- the it was literally yeah. it was right, right before, before. yeah and so you know and people were like what, what the hell like you know yeah. you, you can't just do that to, to them we expected us. yeah because you go and you know and this is and this is happening now but it's like if you don't have the information and you've signed players i mean do you guys remember when um Activision Blizzard and Owl decided that they were going to have um, hero bands. And so when when I want to say it was the Gladiators that signed Flower, who was like the best Widowmaker on the planet for a long time, they signed him to play. Widowmaker was banned for like three of the competitions. So they literally wasted millions because I think they saw, I want to say they signed him for like 1.5 or something, a ridiculous amount. But they signed this kid to play Widowmaker for them. And they did not tell anybody this was going to happen. So then you signed this Widowmaker only to find out, you know, two weeks before competition starts, oh, we're going to do this. And now the money you put into Flower to play Widowmaker, you lose that value because now he can't play the position he's best at. I mean, it just, and that kind of stuff happens and you just go, why, what are you doing? Why I'm expected to play with this roster at the major. And now you're telling me maybe my coach and this player can't play. Get out of here. Well, I think part of it is what goes back to the fact that everyone that's part of ESIC has to voluntarily subject themselves to it. And I think to an extent that put ESIC in a, in between a rock and a hard place where they didn't want to suspend anybody without exhausting the appeals process but then because they didn't have as robust of an investigatory power as they would Mm -hmm. like that ended up taking a long time and so at the end by the time you exhaust the appeals process and everything else uh you end up having a final decision where the punishment comes down and then you just have so much time in between which is different than yeah which is different than like if you are in the nfl and there's allegations and someone gets suspended but then the investigation is nine days or ten days and the appeal is four days and everything's within the NFLPA rules and the NFL charter, um, which is a much more robust body of enforcement than ESIC. And so you have a lot more effective sort of punishment challenge ruling cycles. Um, And so I think, you know, with ESIC, because they want to exhaust the whole appeals process before enforcing any, any suspension or ban, um, it just, and because their investigations took a long time, it just makes it so difficult to have a timely ruling. Well, didn't you see, I, I want to say it was literally two guys looking through all the yeah. video. I want to yeah, say it no, was it's... two guys looking through all those hours of video. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scope and size of that investigation dwarfed their assets. Yep, they just 100%. were not ready for that type of investigation. It's very much like a small PD having a big crime happen and asking for help from the county, right? Because right. maybe their detective bureau is like two people while the county's got, you know, 150 detectives sitting yeah. over there. So it's like, it's very similar to that. But in this case, Isik may have reached out to a couple of people, but they didn't reach out to enough. 
Yeah. And and I I don't know for a fact whether it was two people. I remember hearing or reading that it was a small team for sure. I just remember um, they said that one guy, they, they lauded the one guy that went through all the videos. I saw that yeah. tweet. I forget his name, but he did a great, I mean, he did a great job because he did a lot of work, but right, I just right. remember that one tweet that said, you know, thanks to this one dude that yeah. went through all this stuff. So I, let's just assume it was a very small team. It was a small team. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> to I be fair. I, and I don't want to discredit Isik. Obviously, I, I think highly of Isik for sure. But if you're going to be the governing body, you've got to, you know, one, get some type of be sanctioned by the publishers. I think that's, that's an it. important key thing. And, and, yeah. and that, I think that's going to be the hardest. Obviously, I guarantee you had they wanted, if it was up to them, they probably would at this point. But there's one reason or another. Most of them are business related as to why they're just kind of, you know, kind of lifting their hand. Saying, oh, yeah. Y'all, y'all do it. Um, yep. But and, and, you know, to kind of to kind of. Discuss something you brought up, which is the, the, the Activision Microsoft merger. We sort of talked a little bit about it. Uh, Jake and I have had a whole episode about it where we discuss the actual merger and the, you know, the horizontal versus vertical uh, merger. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that we're going to uh, expect to see as that as that deal sort of unfolds and develops um, is and, and you know, Microsoft typically doesn't like to keep a lot of things in-house, especially the eSport entities. And so where do you see that going? Do you do you anticipate that, you know, well, just I'll, I'll leave it open-ended. What, what do you think is going to happen with a lot of those in-house eSports? Well, a part of me feels almost like this acquisition is going to be very similar to Elon's takeover of Twitter. It sounded like a good idea at the time. Right. And then he finds out that, wait, 44 billion or whatever it was, that's actually a lot of money. And, you know, he's got to go sell some stocks and he's not now he's because now all the information's coming. He's not sure if it's going to be worth it. Right. At the time, I believe that Microsoft, you know, was talking to Activision Blizzard. We were still in that um, bullish phase of esports, right? Where there was still money coming in. It was this, but now that we're seeing a slight downturn, I, you know, I'm not sure Microsoft is as happy as they were when they first started doing this negotiations. But moving on from that, Microsoft is notorious for farming out third parties to run their esports, right? I mean, Halo just to be in, as the example. Um, and from what my sources are telling me, same thing's going to happen with Overwatch and CDL. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, now things could change, right? But I'm telling you, my sources are saying that there's going to be third-party production, third-party you know, people running the league, and that Microsoft is going to um, unload as much of that as possible, uh, you know, creating levels of separation between themselves, um, you know, and the esports division. While they do think it's important, they it just seems that Microsoft, from what I'm hearing, uh, believes that it's just much easier and less messy um, to, uh, you know, put that third party. So, after after the acquisition goes through, which I believe I want to say is going to be like second quarter 23, um, I believe you're going to see a lot, a lot of um, of the esports uh, entities. And we're talking, you know, Warcraft Arena, 
um, Al, CDL, you know, various other things uh, going out. I think you're going to see a lot of people making bids, um, you know, like Esports Engine, um, Savvy Face It Group, um, yeah, Face It, ESL Face It Group, sorry. Um, those guys making bids, because if I'm not mistaken, I think didn't ESL already grab Hearthstone? I think they've already got StarCraft Two. And while those are kind of minor league sports, um, uh, minor league esports, I think that's literally the precursor to what you're going to see going forward. Well, I, I think what what worries us just a little bit is with Microsoft and their subsidiary three four three. Yes. Uh, how they've handled their relationship with the Halo Championship Series and HCS, <laughs> yeah. where you know Nephi and I love Halo and we yep. we love HCS. Their World Championship just went through last weekend. Optic Gaming yeah. won, followed by Cloud Nine, and then Native Gaming, a brand new player on the scene, which HCS still allows for, which we love and we think that's awesome. Um, but really, you know, Tashi and the guys at HCS were they had a hard time creating an esports competitive atmosphere within the bounds of 343 and didn't have a whole lot of help from them, at least it seems from us. And it seems like they told HCS, hey, you know, here's, you have to paint this house and you're only getting a hammer to do it. And so <laughs> yeah. you're going to do a little work and it's hard not to damage what's already there. Um, yeah, I think you're going to you see know? a little bit, I think you're going to see okay budget line items going into esports from Microsoft though. Mm -hmm. And I think that will be the difference, right? It's like, right. okay, you guys are going to run it and we'll give you enough money to run it. Right. But you're right. Small publishers, you know, smaller, I mean, who, who, who thought we would say that today, right? When Halo first came out, that thing, I mean, just everybody who is anybody was playing Halo on their Xbox. Oh, yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, that's just the way it went, but who would say, you know, today as a smaller game, they really did struggle with the Halo World Championships, whether it was, you know, giving that big game feel to competitive integrity decisions to, you know, all sorts of different things. Um, I, I, I want to see Halo thrive. I actually think it's a great game. It's very we entertaining. It's yeah, right. It's a lot of fun. So, I mean, honestly, I think Microsoft is going to give um, enough money to make it worthwhile but that's going to be, but that works to their advantage too, because they're like, literally they can say, well, we gave these people enough money. All the blame is going to be on third party if anything ever goes wrong. I mean, that's kind of the perfect world, right? It's like, I've got the money. You've got the know-how. If you screw it up, I'm, you know, I'm insulated from it. So here you go. And I think, I think that's really the smart play, to be honest. I think everybody should do it. Yeah, and I mean it's and it's a pretty standard procedure that a lot of publishers do. I mean, that we were just talking about ESIC, for example. Part of the reason is they don't want to be beholden or they don't want to be tied in yeah. with a questionable decision or you know um, yes uh, any sort of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for like uh, just um, controversy. Con I was to say controversy. Yeah, yeah, controversy. They don't want to be attached to it, and and I mean yep. and, and I get it. I understand it, and really the key is as long as they're financing it and continuing to push it and allowing it to grow. Um, that's a good thing. And so, and yeah. they're kind of the puppet masters from the back, you know, it's sort of behind the curtain. Um, as, as long as it continues to grow, I guess is, is not a bad thing. And, you know, to kind of echo what you guys are saying about Halo, Halo is one of the, you know, one of my favorite and one of the first esports that I, that I personally competed in. And, um, yep. I mean, I just, it's, it's, and I think that's, 
I think that the feeling that we all share right now is what's keeping Halo alive at the moment is the sheer loyalty I think that people have to Halo and and it's kind of sad to see the viewership drop. I mean, I think total there I mean it's just it was dismal. I mean, it was probably what like 70, 80,000 concurrent viewers or something like that, which Well, no, yeah, so, anywhere, so world yeah. world championship because they they enabled co-streams. Um they were doing they actually pulled some great numbers. Uh, I think they were at 150k right. or something like that, which was right. dwarfs the CDL, oddly right. enough. Um, but they had yeah, to that was get with creative like, with it. I was going to yeah, say with, with creators, oh, yeah. with, with 10, 20,000 viewers each, you know, like their right. typical audience and they're co-streaming in it. And it bumped up the numbers for sure. But, you know, there were some things that were happening before, like the crowdfunding whole, you know, debacle where they were supposed to. Uh, sure. include that as, as you know it's just it was it was a huge mess and and we hate to see it but overall it seemed to be like a good event generally now yeah for sure changing gears and something that you said um which is very important is one of the big things that we wanted to discuss with you was what you mentioned the downturn in esports um one thing and that that we've seen you talk about and Jake and I regularly discuss with clients with sponsors with companies and brands is sort of this slow but noticeable withdrawal of of money from the scene uh can you kind of walk us through what you think is happening and whether or not we should be worried yeah so look 2013 to 2015 people decide wait this is going to be a thing where people can make money and who really, really kicked it off. In my opinion was Activision blizzard getting the crafts, the will ponds uh, to buy into the overwatch league. Right. Um, they got some big sports names to throw some money into the pot. And, and if you don't know out there, <laughs> that's why it's so hard to get money because you have to wait for the first person with money to throw in. And then if all of them see that happen, see, then that's why Activision Blizzard was smart. And I mean, Kodak's no dummy. He, he knows you have to get that first, you know, dollar amount thrown in and then people will follow. Um, it, it's kind of the cool kids club, right? You want to be part of the next cool thing that's happening. So, you know, esports it was growing, growing, growing. But what you saw, was some really strange things where players run the show. Players dictated salaries, not according to value, according to what they want. Because if you're real honest and you look at some teams that were paying $150,000 a month for their Counter-Strike team, they were getting no returns on that. Everybody was in the red. Right. I mean, esports, I like to say, is the only place where uh, the players fire the coach, not the other way around. Right. Um, and I can tell you the amount of salary that people are taking has been growing, growing, growing. So these people are pouring in money, you know, trusting these 23 to 24 year olds in some cases with the keys to the castle saying, all right, kid, go make us some money to find out the only thing that kid was good at was playing video games. 
right? There's a couple out there that are a little different, you know, and I would say, you know, Matthew and Hector, uh, uh, Nate Shot and Hex are, are not in that category. They're, you know, they were young and new and had good head on their shoulders in order to, you know, take some investments and turning it into, you know, real money. But if you look at a lot of other places, it wasn't like that. And now you're watching money dry up. I mean, I can tell you right now. So <laughs> FaZe Clan, I think, closed at $3.58 today. Okay. Today being, you know, October 28th, right? You know, their CEO is making $600,000 a year. Okay. That's public information in their filing. $600,000 a year, right? And hey, if it's worth it, it's worth it. I'm just noting that to me, that seems like an exorbitant salary for the beginnings of this whole esports things. And there are other CEOs. I mean, if you look at the amount of money being put into salary, that's why people are folding so much because all their money is going to salaries and not, you know what do you call that? Research and development, R&D, right? You know, creating products, doing things like that. We spend all our money on, on salaries. And what you're finally seeing, in my opinion, is a correction to that. That's why people are leaving. Positions are being eliminated. Some um, organizations altogether are folding up shop, right? I think you're seeing these smart people that were relying on those that may not have known what they told you they knew. And now they've learned and they're now putting their money to better use. So, uh, uh, Nevi, no worries. I think this is a great thing and it sucks for all my friends. I mean, I could lose my job. Who knows? Right. Because of, you know, we are in a contractual contracting period but it's the best thing for us. It really is. I think we're gonna get through this contracting period because I think those people that are pulling the purse strings are now getting a better understanding and they're gonna scale appropriately. And as you and I kind of talked pre-show, Mark Cuban already knew that. Mm -hmm. And he's not even in gaming. Yeah. You know, I was slightly with Mavs Gaming doing some NBA stuff, but that dude figured it out from the start. We've spoken on three or four different occasions, and that's what he said. Video games are fickle. We don't know how long one's going to last, you know, because if I invest a million dollars into my Team X, well, video game Z is the next big thing. My investing, you know, my investment in Team X doesn't mean anything. So those fickle, you know, kind of wants and ebbs and flows into what's popular and what's not has him and a lot of other people concerned, right? And that's what Activision Blizzard tried to do to sort of assuage those concerns, but obviously that's not working. But I think now, and the words that you saw in Cuban's tweet to me were, you know, scaling appropriately. I think we're finally getting to that spot where we are going to scale appropriately. And it sucks because I've got some good friends that are out of jobs. But in my heart, I believe, and in my brain, I believe they'll be back because I believe the opportunities will be even bigger and better in the future. Yeah. Do you see, as we look back on traditional sports, obviously, you know, baseball and football and basketball at the professional level in North America have had a much longer head start 
than esports. Esports is mostly something that's come around during our lifetime. And yeah. those traditional sports have been able to go through periods of growth and contraction, really through tr like turbulent times where you have Major League Baseball having to make it through World War One and the Spanish yes. flu. And then you have the 20s of Major League Baseball, which really saw a lot of growth. And you had Babe Ruth and Murderers Row. Um, same thing with kind of World War Two and professional American football, where after, uh, you know, World War II, we come back and then people are looking for a new form of entertainment. And then you have, you know, Lombardi and the Packers and the fifties and, and the big, yeah. you know, the big NFL explosion that you have um, that even took over the AFL eventually. Now that we've got, had esports begin off to kind of a somewhat of a hot start. And then we were hit by this pandemic, which impacted every single one of our lives, but more importantly impacted a trajectory in esports that, you know, who knows where it would have gone. Do you see esports at some point growing and being bigger than it was in that, you know, 15, 16, 17 era? Or do you see it being stronger, but maybe on a smaller scale than it was pre-pandemic? Well, let's put it, let's kind of start from the beginning in that Pong came out in what, 1971, I want to say, or mm -hmm. 70, in the 70s. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. That's the first video game. Baseball was invented in 1800s. So how many years head start has traditional sports had over esports, right? So there's right. there's that. The, the history uh, is there, right? But here's the thing, you guys. We are headed to such a technologically advanced society that I really think video games and VR and AR and everything in between is still uh, we're in such we're such in our infancy I think it's gonna blow up I mean <laughs> okay I'm a nerd and uh, the original Battlestar Galactica they were still playing this form of basketball right because you still need to be physically fit you know and that's really what sports are for uh, as a kid right let's be real honest we need to be physically fit. That's what PE, that's what sports are for. They're more for teaching you valuable lessons on how to get along in the real world. You take sports off the planet, we're still going to move, right? We're still going to do things. Uh, we'll just be a lot fatter than we are. But I believe that esports hasn't even touched its growth potential yet. And, and here's a couple of reasons why. There's a barrier to entry still in a majority of African nations. Okay, that once the world sort of catches up and everybody um, has some sort of technological advancement and it's not third world, I mean, I, I want to say that more than half the world is still behind. I mean, India is what? Number one in mobile gaming because of the barrier to entry to PCs and consoles, right? So we still have billions of people that don't have PCs and consoles. We have the West, China, Korea that have technology. The barriers to entry are a little bit less, right? The rest of the freaking world hasn't even gotten there yet. So imagine the one day where every African kid has a PC, where, you know, every kid... Um, in Asia, I mean, some people forget that Russia is a part of Asia, <laughs> you know, and in India, it those when they catch up and they have PCs, they're going to want to play. So I think 
while yes, we are in a technological, you know, boom here uh, in the West and in China, we still have a lot of people that need to catch up and they will. And when they do, okay, ready? Here's my, what is that? What's that skit that Conan O'Brien used to do in the year 3000? In the year 3000, sports will be played VR and you will compete against people. The World Baseball League will be competed against and a team in China playing against the team in U.S. in some cases. In the year 3000. In the year 3000. Book it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Book it. it I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of traditional sports, and I, I, yes. I, hope, I hope that's not the case because I think the physicality makes a huge difference. But I absolutely think that yeah. VR is the future. And, you yeah. know, I, I consume a lot of technology. Yeah. Um, you know, like podcasts, and, and I follow yeah. a lot of uh, people that are involved. I remember... I was watching this uh, the podcast uh, with Mr. Beast right now. I don't know if he's yeah. got some downtime, but he's been doing a lot of podcasts lately. The guy is the king of YouTube, and although he's young, he's 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 got one thing correct in my opinion, which is that this video games, YouTube, Twitch, is the future of entertainment. You 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 look at it from a practical standpoint as as a father of of a relatively young daughter. She, you said she was sixteen years old. Yep. Um, you know, and and I say this all the time. You ask a kid, you know, whenever I was growing up or whenever you were growing, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they'll tell you your typical, oh, I want to be a police officer, I want to be yep. a firefighter, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a lawyer, for or sure, accountant, whatever. You ask a kid today, what do you want to do when you grow up? You can ask a child that's three, four, five years old, barely learning to talk, what do you want to do? And they will tell you, I want to be a YouTuber. It wasn't the fact that I was in law enforcement that my daughter thought I was cool or that I coached uh, with the Olympic team that thought I was cool. You want to know what made me cool? I talked to Ninja. That made me cool. <laughs> that I that I literally yeah. wrote, uh, I had the exclusive on Sapnap signing with NRG. Yeah. yeah my I daughter went, article. yeah, my daughter went, you talked to, Sa-. I was like, that's what makes me cool. Yeah, you, you hit it. You're absolutely right. It's, and- uh, it, that that's where that's, it's at. That's and and kids today, and it's it's all going to be a transition, right? Right. What we're seeing slowly the transition of wealth. Yeah. Same. I mean, it's going to be the transition of of consumerism in general. And you know, I whenever I heard, whenever I saw that tweet between you and and Mark Cuban that were going back and forth, you know, I I I personally have, you know. I think what's sort of what we call, I guess, a downturn in esports is that because esports is so fresh and so new, and there's always a gold rush, everybody was speculating as to the value, right? For those of you who don't know what speculation means, it means you're guessing, they're assuming, because there really is no quantif- there is no, there's not enough information to quantify the value of a certain thing because the value is so wide, right? There, it has yes. a different value to teams, it has a different value to players, it has a different value to consumers, and it has a different value to sponsors, brands, and people that are involved. Every single person has a different benefit to esports, and there was really no way to say what it's worth. And and you were talking about it earlier, for example, with players wanting to choose whatever they want to get paid, right? Yep. How do you justify it? I think part of the reason with with FaZe and uh, you know, and, and I, I think I still think FaZe is being profitable. I just think they they overestimated, you know, they speculated and 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 you know, to their detriment a little bit, they overvalued 
with their um, only by about seven hundred and eighty million dollars because yeah, their market caps at like two thirty five right now and they yeah. valued at one billion. I mean, that's really why they went public. I mean, just as an aside, they wanted to hit that one billion valuation. But now their market cap is somewhere where I think they actually are at 235. Right. And and and, and sure. I, I is the value going to go up? I absolutely think so, right? Without sure. getting, you know, I personally am I'm I'm an investor to a degree, right? I bought stocks in phase is what is what I'm saying because I I honestly and truly believe that they're going to go up. I mean, the, those they guys should. are movers and yeah. shakers and I have faith in them, and I and and you know people are like, oh, esports is dying or Phase is dying because of valuation. Not at nah. all. If you really understand the way the valuation not works. financial advice. Yes, <laughs> yeah, not financial advice at all. The reason why not I'm a forward-looking is, statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and and I I I and thank you, Jake. Uh, as attorneys, we, we got to throw in these caveats in there. Um, you know, every esports is very different. Phase is very bullish with the way that they handle entertainment. Phase, in my opinion, is one of the 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 precursors and 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 the the changers they've really are are the pioneers along with arguably optic and agreed and, yeah and, and hex um they are the pioneers of esports and video games in this entire industry these are the first two major organizations that went mainstream i mean optic is known around the world uh and then you slowly have like the nate shots and a lot of these smaller orgs that are starting to blow up uh, you know one our good friend justin kenna who was original with phase was now the CEO of GameSquare, who's in charge of yeah. complexity. Yep. Um, you know, he was discussing how I think they netted like 50 million over their expected uh, income or, or what was it? Profit, um, you know, because every org is a little different, right? You don't see sure. complexity in the front and center as you do phase constantly. And so <laughs> everybody takes a different approach. And so, um, you know, I in other words, I, I echo your your sentiment which is yeah there's you know we're seeing some shift in the paradigm and there's a, a, what i consider adjustment right a correction things, absolutely exactly a correction yep. and so uh and well, let me let me sorry go ahead jake i was gonna say well the hard part is we have no esports is so new that we have no real cohorts or models right if someone asks you how, how do you think that esports is going to recover from the pandemic and with the economic model, you can't go back and see how esports recovered from 2008 because esports didn't really exist in 2008. Yeah. If someone says, How do you think a publicly traded company like FaZe and esports is going to recover from either a downturn or a correction? You don't really know because there aren't really other publicly traded companies that are that arose through esports. You know, they just don't really exist. So you have no real cohorts for modeling. This purposes. is the frontier for sure. This is the this really is the is. land grab. This is, you know, go west. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and <laughs> I think before we get too long, I know our time's getting short and we promise you we wouldn't take up too much of it. But I would regret if I didn't ask you a little bit. Um, sorry, Nick, I'm going to. Uh, yeah. I, okay. I, no, I already know exactly where you're going. Is, okay. I'm glad you so are. <laughs> if I didn't talk a little bit about this. Um, so we live in Texas, and one organization very near and dear to our hearts is Optic Gaming, which has its franchise in the CDL Optic Texas. We've heard your name a lot from Hector Rodriguez, and every time he mentions an esports journalist, he goes, you know, like the Kevin Hits out there, or, you know, like Kevin Hit. And, uh, and so you broke the story of Hector Rodriguez Hex reacquiring Optic Gaming from Immortals Gaming Club. Broke a phone over me breaking that story. If you saw the video, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, will you just give us a tiny, just a little, a short story about how that happened 
and what your relationship is with Optic and Hector as it stands today. Yeah, no. So (laughs) I think there's an adversarial relationship between (laughs) journalists and um, influential esports figures in the space, right? I, okay, I can tell you this. Uh, remember when I said I will be honest always or I won't answer a question if I yeah. don't want to, you know. Here's the thing. I don't think Hector cares for me much right now, and that's okay. Um, I think, and I, look at this. On the record, I think Hector's a good dude. I think Hector's a good businessman, and I think he's built something fabulous. End of story. I really do. Everything else is just a byproduct of the adversarial relationship between journalists and esports figure. That's what I chalk it up to. So if we ever bark at each other, it's just because we've been put in an adversarial position, right? But I'll tell you what. Do I respect the hell out of that dude? Check. Do I think he's one of the better businessmen on the planet when it comes to esports? Check. And does he put a quality product out there? Check. So with that, that, those are my thoughts on Hector. I mean, I'm absolutely pro Hector businessman, pro Hector human, has a great family. Look, sometimes we don't get along and that's because of the adversarial relationship. Uh, nothing more to add to that, right? Um, right. As far as the optic, man, I'll tell you, I, I don't know... I think what people figured out, you guys, and it took a while, but people didn't know who I was when I first got here. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't Duncan. I wasn't Richard. I wasn't Monty. I wasn't, there's so many people before me, right? But what I think, and I, I really believe this, if you just ask any owner that knows me or anybody that knows who I am, they'll, instead of me having to tell you, they would tell you and back me up i pride myself on being as honest as absolute possible and i would rather you tell me sorry kev i can't talk about it rather than make something up and i'll tell you what i'll never i'll never do you wrong if you tell me something's off the record it's off the record and i can tell you and not only that but sort of being an elder statesman in the space because of my age, mostly, um, you know, I, I can read the room. I'm not going to write articles unless they're absolutely necessary. That going to affect the competitive integrity or performance of a team during a tournament, like writing about people that are getting traded in the middle of a game or middle of an event. Right. I mean, that. Right. Doesn't that suck if you were literally playing for a team and you read an article in the middle of your event, you know, whether it would be, you know, Halo CSGO that you were going to get traded? That would suck, right? And would it make you maybe – you've got to read the room, right? So I think I do those things very well. Um, And so when it came to the Immortals and I I honestly don't remember who spilled the beans on that. I just – I – I just remember getting a phone call from a source saying, he's going to do it again, Kev. Like, what are you talking about? He's going to get it back. He's going to get it back. And I was very happy and very pleased. Um, And if you guys don't know, one of my all-time favorite people um, works at Optic, Paige Reed. I coached her in college. 
Did you guys know that? She was one of my yeah. Yeah. No, I coached her in college. She was uh, one of our defensive specialists at Cal State Fullerton when I was assistant coach there. So yeah, no, yeah, no. uh, We and overarching, don't we need the optics of the world to thrive so that everybody else can get there? So let's let's hope that optic you know gets even bigger and and mo better. Okay. So (laughs) so yeah, we agree. Yeah. On 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 an on an ending note, right? As as for the listeners and the viewers that are watching this and the people that are listening to this, if you have somebody that's looking to get into journalism and esports in particular, what is what are some advice that you can give them to get into this career? What are some things that maybe some stepping stones or some some tips to say, hey, you know what, this is what I did and this is what I recommend you do? So I you know, I'll just I'm gonna just relate the story of George Geds. I hired George. I was the very first person that hired George Gedge to write. He was, I want to say he was like a 17-year-old kid out of nowhere. He just emailed me one day and said, I really love this. And I can write about this. And I asked him to send me, you know, a couple of things. He didn't lie. He knew the space. He knew the game he was writing about. And so we did like a a, a six article deal where, you know, we paid him over six pieces. He did a great job. Now, if that wouldn't have worked out, that doesn't mean that George, I mean, obviously George is doing great now. So that guy's talented. He knows what he's doing. He's off on a great career. Right. But it's like, you got to know your content. I would say just being a player isn't enough. Like, no, I'm really good at league. I can it's not that simple. You really do need to immerse yourself in the space, know what you're talking about, and then be able to articulate that in writing, right? Um, and, and so I would just make sure that I was a master of my space, that I was a master you know, of what I was doing, and then continue to hone my skills. And don't be afraid to be persistent. I'm telling you, one of the things that Jacob Wolf is better than anybody else on the planet is his bulldog-like mentality in chasing a story. He just doesn't let go. And that's what he's really, really good at. And he's persistent and he's good at it. And so I would say, be persistent, know your material, don't say no. And again, ultimately in the thousand timelines that can happen, there is a timeline where people just aren't going to be able to do it, right? I was never going to be the center for my beloved Los Angeles Lakers. Just wasn't going to happen. (laughs) Wasn't in the cards, no matter how many tryouts I would go to, right? But I can write, and I can write about the center of the Los Angeles Lakers, and I can write about esports. So I would say those are my tips. And even though you're seeing, again, a sort of, contraction of esports media sites. I know a whole lot of people that started by starting their own and look at them now. So I still think there's going to be a great deal to come. Plus there's so many news organizations out there such as Fox news, um, NBC, ABC, you know, I, I know they're sort of a ESPN, you know, Disney owned company, but there's local ABC. affiliate people are going to want to know about gaming. There's going to be a lot of opportunities. So be ready. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so in, in, in closing, what do you have going on? Is there something you want to talk about that's going on in your personal life or your, your, uh, your professional life, uh, story you want people to keep an eye on? I, I read the, the SAPNAP, uh, you know, ownership of NRG deal and anything you want to promote. 
So a couple things. My goal, so my goal is always as a writer is to break our website, which I can say, <laughs> uh, you know, a self, you know, self brag, whatever you want to call it. But I can say that I've broken TEO's website on four occasions. And that is my goal. And a SapNap story, that got a lot, a lot of play. And uh, what I'm, the stories I think we should be paying particular attention to right now are the media rights deals. Where are they? CDL, Al, starting in how long? Nothing yet, right? right? There's, lit I mean, their deal's up at the end of 2022, and I believe CDL starts like December something or other, like the first week, right? Yeah, right. No media rights deal. Um, so uh, that and that's going to be a bigger theme because remember the 80 million dollar deal, 120, you know, all those YouTube, all those Twitch deals. You're not going to see those. Okay, You're not going to see those anymore. You you might get a little bit. So pay attention to those. But uh, to professionally, what we're starting at SBJ is I'm going to be doing a lot more video and I'm going to be doing a lot more um, uh, like 15 minute news shows where we do either a daily or a weekly um, where we're going to give it to you. PVP live, man, they were on to the right thing. They were just too early. They just came in too early. There just wasn't enough want for lack of a better word, but man, they were doing it right. If PVP live was around today, I think they'd be doing very well. So look for a lot more video content coming from me and SBJ going forward. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you everybody for tuning. Thank you, Kevin, for taking the time. Yeah. To sit, you know, talking to a couple of young esports lawyers about <laughs> everything. We love happening it, man. Esports and, uh, you know, we, we love sitting with you guys, learning about you, because you, you're again. We told Richard the same thing. You guys are always talking about other people, and I think it's sort of a breath of fresh, of fresh air for the listeners and your viewers and your fans um, mm -hmm. to 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 or your followers to get to know you a little bit more in this context. And I think we need more of it. Uh, you know, and and we're happy to have you. And so, thank you everybody for for tuning in. Thank you, Kevin, for your time. Make sure you guys follow us on social media. You can find us at the Law of Esports on all handles um and i want to make sure i give your your the right one it's at kevin underscore hit h-i-t-t -T, right that's it on, yes sir on twitter yep. uh if you guys are watching this on youtube please like and subscribe we don't say that often because i'm it's not in our you know vocabulary to say that but you know like the richard lewis video got i don't know like 10 or eleven thousand views and I it's worth it yeah it's you know you guys tune in we're going to try to talk to a lot more different people so uh, thank you guys so much, Kevin. Again, thank you for stopping by. A pleasure. Thank All right, you, man. Guys. I really appreciate it. We'll see you all on the next video. See you guys. Thank you.